Well, it's good to see you all. Happy Sabbath. Um, today, we initially uh, were going to have a guest speaker come, um, and he unfortunately had a had a uh, a call to do something um, pretty important, uh, pretty important, and so he wasn't able to make it. Um, for those of you who remember Bruce Manners last year, uh, came and came to our church as a guest speaker, and um, it was really just nice getting uh, a refreshing take on the gospel from someone who uh, w- was an experienced pastor. And for those of you who know Bruce Manners, he um, is actually in retirement, and he wrote a book on how to retire in a healthy way because it's a major life transition. And so um, he kind of talks about it from um, a Christian perspective. And uh, so we initially had him scheduled to, to speak, but then uh, Hope, Hope Channel contacted him and asked him to actually do a series of talks and record them. And so uh, he's kind of doing a tour of uh, sharing uh, the importance of retiring well. And so uh, he unfortunately was not able to join us today. And so uh, we thought it'd be a good time to just kind of inject um, a sermon that's kind of separated from different uh, the different series that we've preached in the past and uh, just kind of do a standalone talk. And uh, really where this talk originates from is uh, in February, all the Adventist pastors in Australia gathered together at Avondale College um, to go through five days of training and uh, just kind of, yeah, really training and professional development. And while we were there, there was a New Testament professor by the name of Cedric Vine, and he gave this talk on the importance of righteousness. And initially, I kind of thought, oh, this is going to be kind of a boring talk, but oh, well, we're going to go anyway because we're here, so we should, we should go listen. And as I listened to him, I just thought it was such a, a compelling message. And so um, a good portion of this talk is based on his talk um, from Avondale. And so I wanted to share this with you. And... Um, the the bulletin um, or excuse me um, the previous slide the opening slide was talking about the uh, the call of the Christian and I kind of thought oh like we're trying to get internet viewers and things like that you never know who could come to church because they read the newsletter and so I thought oh, I'm going to change the title and so it's uh, the righteous sodomite um, the story of Lot and so um, we're going to be talking about the importance of righteousness. And before I start, I'm just going to invite you to join me for one more word of prayer, and we'll open God's word. Father God, uh, we come before you today, and we just want to thank you that um, we're able to come here and worship together, to congregate, to uh, express our faith, to be encouraged, to spend time uh, with one another in a faith community, and I just want to pray that um, for this next hour that you would guide our hearts and our minds, that you would speak to us, and that as we discuss the call of what it means to be a Christian, that you would compel us um, to be faithful to you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, in the Old Testament, there's a label for the righteous. They're called the Sadiq. And the, the Sadiq are kind of like the superstars of the Bible. They are kind of the celebrities, if you will. And in the Bible, the first Sadiq is mentioned, as, or Noah is mentioned to be the first Sadiq in the Bible. And as we know, Noah is a very important character in Old Testament, or in the Old Testament. 
What I want to do with you first is define the right, define what it means to be righteous. We're going to talk about the characteristics of the sadiq, and then we're going to talk about the purpose or the importance of the sadiq. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to open them with me to Psalm chapter 15. Psalm chapter 15. For those of you who have your white Bibles, it's page 446. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you on the slide a breakdown of the chapter. And as I just kind of highlight different points, um, I'll invite you to just read along with me. Psalm chapter 15. If you look at the first verse, notice it says, Who may worship in your sanctuary, Lord? Who may enter your presence in your holy hill? Those who lead blameless lives and do what is right. And so the intro question is, who can stand before the presence of God? And the answer is, it's the righteous, the sadiq. And what I want to do is share with you the structure of this chapter. And what happens is, first, as, it, as the psalmist breaks down the characteristics of the sadiq, it talks about three positive characteristics that are a part of the um, sadiq. And then it talks about three negative characteristics that the sadiq kind of, um, that are not a part of their character. And then it repeats to two positive character, characteristics and then two negative characteristics. And so what happens is as you add the three positive, three negative, three pos two positive, two negative, you come up with ten characteristics. And there's a specific reason for that. But let's just go through those characteristics together. So the characteristics of the sadiq, they walk blamelessly. They are those who do right. They speak the truth. They do not backbite uh, their neighbors. They're not gossipers. They do no evil. There is no reproach of their character. They are a good judge of character. They do what is good even when it is inconvenient to themselves. They do not charge interest on their loans. They do not take a bribe against the innocent. And so here are those 10 characteristics. And if I were to summarize this, or if, if not to summarize this, if I were to categorize this, I would say there's a strong relationship between the characteristics of the Sadiq and the Ten Commandments. Ten characteristics, Ten Commandments. And basically, the psalmist is saying that the Sadiq give a nod to the law. See, the Sadiq, they take the law and they make it livable. They're not just students of the law. They are not just scribes or scholars. They are doers of the law. The sadiq live out that which is right, honorable, and good. There's a second passage that highlights the characteristics of the sadiq. And once again, we're going to see 10 characteristics. And that's Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 5 to 9. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 5 to 9. And I'd actually like to read this together. I'll read through this with you. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 5 to 9. And for those of you who have your white Bibles, this is page 678. Here's what the Bible says. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 5 to 9. It says, 
Suppose a certain man is righteous, and there's that word, sadiq, and does what is just and right. He does not feast in the mountains before Israel's idols or worship them. He does not commit adultery or have intercourse with a woman during her menstrual period. He's a merciful creditor. He does not keep the items given as security by poor debtors. He does not rob the poor, but instead gives food to the hungry and provides clothes for the needy. He grants loans without interest, stays away from injustice, is honest, fair, honest and fair when judging others, and faithfully obeys my decrees and regulations. Anyone who does these is just and will surely live, says the Sovereign Lord. So there are ten characteristics once again. Notice there's this promise. If an individual practices this, they will surely live, says the Lord God. There's kind of like this promise that's injected. Now there's a slight difference between this list and the previous list that we read. There are some similarities, but the difference here is in the latter half of this passage, it highlights the fact that the Sadiq, they care for the hungry, the poor, they provide clothes for the needy. There's this element of charity or giving. So if I were to summarize the character of the Sadiq, the Sadiq balance out the two major character traits of God, the holiness of God as well as the charity, the grace, and the mercy of God. The Sadiq are givers. They help others when they are in trouble. You know, when the Jews went into the promised land, there were 11 tribes that were given land to basically feed themselves and to take care of themselves. But as Israel settled into the promised land, there were two groups that existed in Israel that were not able to live off of the land. The first group are the Levites. In other words, they're kind of like the olden day pastors. And they were not given a land inheritance. They were never going to own property. Um, and basically, it was their purpose to then reveal what God was like to Israel. That was their sole purpose. But the poor, they're a different story. When Israel first came into the promised land, there was no such a thing, there's no such thing as homelessness in Israel because everybody received land. And basically, the command was never sell your property. You're supposed to hold it and pass it on to the next generation as an inheritance. And so, uh, as the generations would pass on, there would always be that sense of security. And so, land was not just a status of wealth, it was kind of an, it was a holy inheritance that they were supposed to hold on to. But what would inevitably happen is that there would be people in the community that were not as good at managing themselves. And so they would sell their properties, and then they would lose the money, and then they would sell their own lives and become servants to uh, the wealthy. And so um, what ends up happening is God implements this, this set of rules to take care of the homeless. There's a whole section in Leviticus that's dedicated to this, and I want to share one verse with you. Leviticus chapter 23, verse 22. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and the alien or the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. So notice here, the whole nation of Israel, they were supposed to practice the character traits of the Sadiq. They were, to be, they were supposed to be um, 
a giving nation, a charitable nation. In the New Testament, this idea of righteousness and charity is also highlighted by the teachings of Jesus. In Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46, there's this parable that's given of the sheep and the goats. And I'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. Matthew chapter 25, verses 31 to 46. And for those of you who have your white, uh, white Bibles, there's a little subheading there that's called the final judgment. And here it really puts in the character of the Sadiq in the context of judgment. So verses 31, the first three verses, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. And there's that picture of judgment. The sheep are the righteous, the goats are the wicked. So first, Jesus is going to address the righteous. And let me just narrate or summarize this for you. So verses 34 to 40. Basically, Jesus says, the sheep that are on the right hand, they're given everlasting life. And if you skim down to verse 35, he says, for I was hungry, you gave me food. I was thirsty, you gave me drink. I was a stranger, you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. And here are the very things that are mentioned in the Old Testament uh, that we just read in Ezekiel. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we do those things? And the response is, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And so Jesus' response is, whenever there was anybody who needed help, it's as if you've done it to me. And hence, he says, enter into everlasting life. In contrast, the goats are then judged based on their lack of charity. And it's basically the exact opposite of what has just been mentioned. And when the goats ask, Lord, when did we see you hungry or naked? Or when did we see you in need? And he says in verse 45, Assuredly, I say to you, uh, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And hence, judgment. God sees giving as an indicator that grace has been received. It takes a degree of humility to realize that we are here because someone gave us a break. Someone gave us a chance, a job, an inheritance. And in the case of God, salvation. God gives us forgiveness. He gives us the Holy Spirit, the promise of his presence. He gives us his guidance, his blessing, and in return, God asks us to do the same for those who are in need of mercy. Jin Ha was talking about uh, the backpack beds um, during welcome uh, and announcement time. Um, so I contacted this nonprofit organization because their product seemed really, really good. They'd won multiple design awards, and I thought it'd be pretty cool to be able to provide shelter for people who are on the streets. And you know, we live in an incredible country where if anybody is pretty proactive, they can get shelter, Centerlink benefits, and they can get their lives back on track. But there's this group of people 
for whatever reason, they just are not able to plug into this system. I met one individual on the street, um, and he basically said, oh, look, um, I, I passed him the backpack bed, and he was so grateful. And I said, hey, like, have you been able to try and get into shelter or consistent shelter? And basically he's like, oh, well, I've got schizophrenia. And then he started listing all these psychological and medical conditions that just don't allow him to function as a normal human being. And so uh, what I realized is there's this group here that live in the city that no matter what, they're just not going to be able to function uh, normally. So Backpack Beds for Homeless is uh, a company that basically, it's a nonprofit organization that's really trying to get rid of uh, homelessness in Australia, and basically their vision, if you will, is to just provide shelters for every single person. There shouldn't be a single person in Australia who doesn't have a shelter over their heads to get out of the rain and the cold and the wind. So this um, organization asked me, hey, would you like to be an official distributor in the city of Melbourne? And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. And they said, every now and then there are donors that will provide backpack beds for specific areas. Um, and so... Anyway, I thought, yeah, put me on the wait list. And I, I honestly thought, nobody's going to donate and we'll just fundraise and then we can just pass out the beds when we get them. But a few months, few months later, I get a phone call and they're saying, hey, somebody has donated 12 backpack beds. And it's 100 bucks a pop, so somebody gave $1,200 um, to this cause. And that means there are now going to be 12 people who don't have to sleep in the wind and the rain, which is really, really cool. If you think about it, for $100, it gives someone shelter. And, and really what they're, what they're doing is um, they're saying, how do we get people to feel um, safe and warm without losing uh, a degree of, of self-esteem? And so these beds are very discreet. They're easy to pack up. They're very sanitary. Uh, they're really, really well designed. Now, what I was surprised uh, what, what I was really surprised at was the fact that somebody donated money and actually came to us as I'd put my name on the wait list. And I realized... They're just, not only do they need people to donate the beds, they need people to distribute the beds that are given. And that was kind of a shocker to me because it's kind of like, well, who wouldn't just like give out free stuff? Like that's like, it doesn't actually cost me anything. And so it was like this incredible um, aha moment where I just thought, man, there's such a great need for people to participate in giving, if you will. So as Jinha mentioned, um, in the next five or six weeks, we're going to organize um, a time in the afternoon where we're going to go out and we're going to pass out these beds because, um, as you could tell from this week, the temperature has definitely dropped. Winter is upon us, and it's just it's really cold out there. And so there's, there's this need to help people. I was talking to the Adder director about the donation, and she said, hey, can I actually come with you guys when you do it? And what she's trying to do is she wants to raise awareness of what we're doing here in the city. And so there's this good opportunity to actually gain momentum, uh, to let other people know within the denomination, hey, we're actually doing something in the city to uh, alleviate homelessness. And so um, I just want to give a plug, and if you're free that Saturday afternoon, and, and we'll, we'll let you know when we go out, we'd love to have you join us. So as I was mentioning, the Sadiq, they're kind of like those that are highlighted in the Bible. They balance out justice, and they balance out mercy. 
But what I point, what I want to point out is that even today, the virtues of the sadiq are still valued. I'm curious, how many of you are familiar with uh, Malala? Pretty well-known individual. This young lady is the youngest Nobel uh, Prize laureate um, in in history, and um, she became well-known because she's an activist for female education. Um, and she, uh, uh, excuse me, she's from Pakistan, and she's an activist for female education, and. The reason why she became well-known is because the Taliban were kind of responding to her activism. And as she was on her way to school, the Taliban attacked her school bus and basically attempted an assassination on her life. And so basically she got shot. And um, I don't know if you can tell, but I, I believe she got shot in the mouth. Um, and lo and behold, her life is preserved. She's um, still alive and well, and she wrote books, and now she's creating awareness um, for the importance of, of education. And here's this young girl who's a teenager in high school, and basically she's taking the stand for justice and equality. And what happened is it almost pulls the world around her, and she's been invited to so many different talk, sh uh, talk shows to kind of share about what she's been doing and the different causes that she's supporting. And the point is that the world is drawn to those who are um, vanguards for justice, if you will. She has the characteristics of the sadiq. This these two individuals you'd probably know a little bit better, uh, Bill and Melinda Gates. They are the founders of the Bill and, Gates, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And basically, it's dedicated to make the world a better place. Um, as I was walking through the airports, like maybe eight years ago, there was a slogan, a slogan elim eliminating polio from India. And uh, India is like one of the biggest countries in the world. And here are these two individuals who are kind of like, hey, we have, we have a lot of money. I bet you we can create change. And lo and behold, I kind of asked somebody uh, from India just like a couple of years ago, hey, so has polio been eliminated from India? And he turned to me, he's like, yeah, pretty much. Like he, he's like, anybody who needs a vaccination can get a vaccination. Like That is just incredible that two individuals could sit down and say, hey, let's do this, and it actually happened. And when I think about that, these are the characteristics of the sadiq, people who are saying, I will stand up for justice, and I will give mercy. Society looks up to the sadiq because it cannot help but be drawn to that which is good. And this is simply what I want to say today, that the character of God draws people. The character of God draws people. I had a really interesting conversation with a high school friend of mine this week. I haven't talked to him in years, years. And he just contacted me out of the blue, and he was just like, hey, I just wanted to see how you're doing. And as we were chatting, um, I came to the realization that he's... Where he's at is he's like, look, I want to believe in a God, but I just don't believe in God. And I was kind of, you know, going through the normal apologetic stuff. And I was kind of like, you know, the teachings of Jesus have value and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he's like, I don't have any problems with the teaching of teachings of Jesus. And that was such an interesting thing to hear to someone who is pretty much secular. He's saying, I cannot deny the character of God. It is good. And that's a very powerful, powerful thing. 
So let's talk about the purpose of righteousness. We've defined righteousness. Let's talk about the purpose of righteousness. Genesis chapter 18, and we're going to read verses 16 to 33, or we're going to look at the story that takes place between verse 16 and 33. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. Genesis chapter 18, looking at verses 16 to 33. And this is a story of Abraham interceding for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham is one of the, um, a very notable Jewish figure in history. And here in this story, kind of the father of Judaism is, has this unique interaction with God. In this story, we find that Abraham's family member, his nephew Lot, lives in Sodom, in, uh, in, the, in the city of Sodom, which is next to Gomorrah. And God hears that these cities are in such a bad situation. He, he realizes that these, he hears that these cities are sinful, and God personally investigates what's going on. Now, in this story, God knows that Abraham has this nephew, um, Lot, who's living in the area. And so he decides, you know what? I'm going to tell Abraham what I'm going to do. And what happens next is um, very notable. So from verse 22 to 25. Notice. As the other men turned and headed towards Sodom, and the Lord remained with Abraham... Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why, why you would be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? Abraham asks this question, are you going to treat the righteous the same as the wicked? And in the story of judgment, God considers the righteous when he deals with the unrighteous. When I usually think of judgment, I think of personal accountability. There's this passage in Ecclesiastes. Oh, different verse. In Ecclesiastes, and let me just read it for you. It says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So usually in the context of judgment, personal accountability is really, really important. Judgment is generally seen as a personal thing. We stand before the throne of God and we respond for our lives. Or we respond um, with what we've done in our lives. But in this story, we're given an example of communal judgment. That the presence of the sadiq or the righteous has the potential to change what happens in a community. And in this case, the city of Sodom. If we keep reading from verses 27 to 31, we find that Abraham has tested the waters. He realizes that God is willing to accommodate his request. And then he starts negotiating with God. Abraham doesn't actually think there are 50 righteous people, but he doesn't want to start too, too, um, he doesn't want to be too ambitious. 
So we start seeing, or we see, we see him negotiating. Abraham is unsure if he's asking too much, and then he incrementally lowers the number of righteous people that have to be there in order for the city to be saved. So he says, what if there are 45? God says, okay, if there are 45, I won't destroy the cities. What about 40? God says, okay, 30? If there are 30 righteous people, I won't destroy the cities. What if there are 20? And then finally, from verses 32 and 33, he drops the number down to 10. Lord, please don't be angry with me if I speak one more time. Suppose only 10 are found there. And the Lord replied, then I will not destroy it for the sake of the 10. When the Lord had finished his conversation with Abraham, he went on his way and Abraham returned to his tent. So notice in this conversation, God never tells Abraham no. And I often wonder, what would have happened if Abraham said, what if there's only one righteous person? Will you destroy the city for the sake of the one? And the point is, we'll never know because Abraham ends the conversation, not God. See, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah starts out with hope. There's this opportunity of redemption for the cities. But if you look at chapter 19, and I'm just going to narrate this, you're going to find, or we find that Lot is the only righteous person in Sodom and Gomorrah. See, there are two angels of judgment that walk into the city, and they come in the form of men. And as they enter Sodom, Lot shows them hospitality. When the city hears of the arrival of the two strangers, they try to harm the two visitors, and Lot tries to protect them. See, Lot produces the character traits of the Sadiq. But as God sees that the whole city is against these two strangers or his angels, he assesses the situation and judgment is served. Lot, along with his family, are taken out of the city. But as you read through the story, you find that Lot is the only person in the city that expresses the characteristics of the Sadiq. It really is a story of judgment that starts out with hope but ends in tragedy. The relevance for today is worth considering. You know, five years ago, I would hear people praying, and a a, a regular thing that I would hear in prayer is, God, thank you that we have the freedom to worship. And I remember listening to that thinking, that's such an odd prayer, because everybody that prayed that would have been a lie or born no earlier than 100 years before that. And Christianity for the most part, is a fairly popular thing, at least in the Western world. Like in America, in Australia, it, it has been something that has been generally seen as something that's positive in the past. But over the last two years, I feel like there's this shift in society. And, and I don't want to sound too alarmist here. In a lot of ways, Christianity is still seen as a very positive thing. But there are different policies, there are different things that have been implemented that make it harder for Christianity. Let me try and give in a couple examples here. Jinha and I came on religious, uh, temporary religious visas. And back then, it was very easy for the conference to then call people from overseas to come in and be ministers. And basically, if you stay as a pastor for two years, you can then apply for permanent residency and uh, the denomination has an immigration lawyer who's very good, and basically it's not difficult to 
get a permanent residency because uh, the job of a pastor is something that's seen as a need in Australia. Um, and so it was very easy for Jinha and I to become um, permanent residents here. And then you fast forward two more years and then we became citizens. And that's, that's something that we're incredibly, incredibly thankful for. I had a, um, I, I learned something new a couple weeks ago where the government basically has changed the temporary religious visa and it no longer exists. And so nobody can come from overseas as a religious worker to work here in this country. And that's just completely axed out. And so as I thought about that, I turned to Jinha and I was like, you know, if we came three or four years later, we wouldn't have been able to stay here long term. Like we, we, I shouldn't say lucky, but we're really blessed to be here. Like that, that was a very narrow window of opportunity that we had to experience what we experienced. And so because the, the religio-political landscape is changing, policies are then changing. You know, there are a couple of other policies that have been changed. And those policies, I don't know why I'm tiptoeing around this. Let's talk about the Marriage Equality Act, right? This is a dated policy. And rightly or wrongly, the policy has been updated. And those policies used to favor religion. Now, it makes it much difficult for Christianity and religion in general. If you think about the safe schools policies, they're being updated and also Christian schools are having to review, hey, how do we implement um, these policies within our schools? And so it's kind of a unique thing for me as a pastor to kind of sit here and feel like, you know what, I feel like, I still feel like Christianity is very much accepted and there's zero hostility um, that I've seen or that I've experienced. And at the same time, the time where Christianity is popular is no longer there. Like, it's, there's a shift in society. So as I think about this idea of the importance of living out righteousness, I think it's becoming increasingly important for Christians to then live out righteousness in their lives, to be that example of what it means to know God. See, the ideal, of course, is to proclaim the gospel so that people can learn about Jesus and experience salvation. But living out righteousness and spreading that righteousness gives temporal benefit to that community. Number one, because doing good and giving mercy is good. But it also gives God that space to make himself aware, uh, make the community aware that he has people who are faithful to him. We live in a time where the world may not want to acknowledge who God is. But we are called to show people what God is like. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And it only takes a little bit of salt to preserve. It only takes a little bit of salt to create taste. We are to provide that sense of saltiness to the world. See, Lot was the good sodomite, and he tried and what, uh, there could have been that potential to create change in his city. So I think about today in our city of Melbourne. What can we do to be that change, to be that salt, to provide that sense of, uh, to, to provide that righteousness for the city? You know, 
we may not in our workplaces be able to invite people to Bible study. I don't know if you've ever tried to witness to somebody in your workplace. And even as a pastor, there are times where I try to witness and I recognize there are challenges. So sometimes it's difficult to proclaim the name of God. But what I find is it's so easy to practice the righteousness of God. If there's an injustice at work that's taking place, it's completely within your duty and your right to be able to say, this is wrong. We should be doing something else. If there's injustice or dishonesty, we are called to stand up and be that standard of righteousness. If there is a need of people in our lives who are in a difficult spot, while it would be difficult to go to that person and say, hey, let me pray for you, or hey, do you want to believe in Jesus? It's completely different to say, let me help you. So while it's becoming increasingly difficult to proclaim the name of God, we are called to live out the righteousness of God. I've told some of you this story, but on my days off, I like to play table tennis. And at the table tennis club, um, you know, small talk is always kind of an interesting thing for me because the first, at least the first three questions that you ask somebody are, what kind of work do you do? And for me, I'm always curious as to how people are going to respond because they ask me, what do you do? And I tell them, I'm a pastor. And then immediately, if they're kind of like, oh, I'm a Christian too, it's like, okay, cool. Like, everything is good. But sometimes they're like, oh. And it gets awkward. Like, okay, well, it's nice meeting you. And then you just keep playing table tennis. But what I found is that in my, I've been at this club for about two years now. And I know who every single Christian in that club is because of my job. Like, I have to wear Christianity over my head because it's like, immediately, what kind of work do you do? Oh, I'm a pastor. Um, and it, it's actually very interesting. Most people don't know what pastors are. So they're like, so you're a priest? Not exactly, but anyway. So what's, what's happened as a result is that I've been able to network every single Christian inside of that club because what I'm finding is people don't naturally say, um, oh, hey, so what kind of work do you do? Uh, what kind of work do you do? And the follow-up question be, so are you a Christian? Because that's just an awkward, it's an awkward conversation to have. And so it never, that conversation never takes place. But inject a pastor, it's like, hey, did you know that person's a Christian too? And they're like, what? And they'll start talking to, a, to each other and share their faith. And what's happened is that there's kind of this community of Christians that now talk about theology, Bible, our beliefs. And we just kind of talk about, hey, how is church going for you? Or uh, what are you reading these days? And it's created this very unique environment. And what I'm realizing is that the more that I step out and just let people know this is who I am, it, it's done a very interesting positive thing in my life when it comes to the table tennis club. So a few weeks ago, the, table cl uh, the, the club manager said, hey, Roy, there's this individual here who actually really needs prayer. Um, is it okay if I organize a time for you to actually sit down with this person, talk to them, and pray with them? And I kind of just... I never really tried to witness or anything like that in that environment, but just the fact that the club manager knew you're a pastor, this person needs help, will you pray for them, was an incredible, incredible thing for me because I just realized the world needs people who believe in God because there are times where people just need something. They need hope. And it is by practicing righteousness that it opens the door for the witnessing and so it's my prayer that as 
we are this, this church in the city, um, a lighthouse to this community, the salt in this area, that as we practice righteousness, it's my prayer that it'll open doors for us to then be able to proclaim the gospel. But in this time where it's becoming increasingly, uh, increasingly unique to be a Christian, may our lives be that testimony so that it would draw people to the love of God. May God bless you.